As a performer, your body is there. Hi, I'm Mad Kate, and you're listening to Sweat, Sexuality, Work, Extraction, Art, Theatrics. Sweat is a series of conversations about performance and performativity of the sexual and sexualized body at work, where work is broadly defined as the labor of survival, the labor of care, creativity, and art. How exactly do we define our work, and how does that work entangle and circumscribe our sexual identities, our creative lives, and the ways in which we provide care? How do we perform tasks, acts of care, and identities? Anchored in our always already racialized and sexualized bodies, our complex intersectionalities, these conversations are a means of relating through work to each other. I hope they contribute to dialogues which normalize sex work as work and all work as deserving of respect, healthy conditions, and a living wage. I'm trying to expand drag from the realm and the area of gender, but thinking about it in terms of being a human body in this sort of increasingly digitized and datafied world, and that drag and dragging can be a mode of resistance. Today's conversation is with artist and researcher Ellie Clark. The focus of her multimedia-based artistic work lies on the transformation of the physical body in an increasingly digitally mediated and experienced world, which she explores through performance, video, photography, music, curated and community-based projects. I spoke with Ellie in conversation with Adrian Teicher, my co-collaborator in Hyenas. Our conversation was in the context of an ongoing project about arts and extractivism. Ellie is entering the final stages of her PhD at Goldsmiths University of London entitled, Is My Body Out of Date? The Drag of Physicality in the Digital Age. I'm interested in the idea that this identity emerged from me and with me but then I invited other people to do it. And this idea that it's a transferable, wearable, kind of open source identity, and you kind of learn the code, you learn the gestures, which is actually not that different from any job in a way. We spoke about Ellie's uneasy collaboration with her drag character, Sergina, a multi-bodied drag queen who, across one body and several, performs online and offline about love, lust, and loneliness in the mesh of hyper-disconnection gathering, and now also selling data as she goes. And I've been making work thinking about for a long time the kind of impact of the digital on our physical body and mental health and all the rest of it. And this is since the mid-90s, so how websites even would affect a museum visit, for instance, like from that, with that sort of thing to obviously having all the information on your fingertips all the time to the way that we remember, the way that we record things, the way we think about our archives and memory and things like that. Um, Because of having phones, even the way that we describe things, that you don't ever have to describe any person or any place, you can just show photographs. So how it sort of affects also language. And as a photographer as well, it's been really interesting to, I mean, very early projects of mine was where I would give disposable cameras to different people, communities that I was working with. And... And I remember a photography professor from the Royal College of Art came to one of my shows that I'd done with my neighbours actually in East London. And I remember him talking for a really long time about what it was to see these photographs by like amateur photographers, you know, and that, and, and it's just kind of amazed to think that that was even a concept, you know, that it was people would look at people's photographs who were not kind of self-identified as photographers and be really fascinated in the sort of 
you know, slightly like voyeuristic, really weird way, you know, and now, of course, everybody takes photographs all the time. And so that's really changed. Yeah, it's so part of our world. Selfies and yeah. Selfies and um, sharing photographs and photographing every moment and all of that sort of thing. You know, back in the day, you'd have a cat, you know, most families would have a camera somewhere stuck in the corner. And, you know, every six months, you'd get it back and it would have sort of three birthplaces on it and something and you know more pictures would be taken and and you know we are really affected I often think what would how different would the world look how different would architecture look if the lens of a camera the viewfinder was round for instance rather than rectangle you know that that you think about it just affects us so much on our screens also following that same template so I think a lot about templates um, so the moment I'm doing a PhD at Goldsmiths Um, which is called the drag of physicality in the digital age. I have a drag performance practice, but I'm trying to expand drag from the realm and the area of gender, but thinking about it in terms of being a human body in this sort of increasingly digitized and datafied world that we're in. Mm. And that drag and dragging can be a mode of resistance, but also the feeling of being dragged dread down sometimes by the phys- phys- physicality of our bodies uh, feels almost incongruous with this kind of um, agility and promiscuity of being able to be in many places at once that we can be sort of online and this sort of you know the need to sleep the need to earn money the need to keep the body alive so we can generate the data to keep the body going but it's is it our data that everyone wants so you know we, so in this idea of value which is kind of shifting and I think we saw that happen you know, that was became very apparent in COVID where our bodies were literally poisonous. Our breath was potentially deathly. And so our bodies were confined to our separate places and we met online. Um, but as we met online, we had to, or as we met outside as well, you had to exchange a lot of data, give a lot of data up for that kind of benefit of being able to sit in co-presence, physical co-presence with someone else. So my drag persona was called Sagina. She emerged just for fun here in Berlin in the like late noughties. Um, and at the same time, I was in a kind of band with six other artists. We're all in our 30s at the time. Um, yeah, kind of non-binary female people, um, artists called Theodore Storm. And none of us would really call ourselves musicians. And we each came to this band with a sort of idea for a song and then we'd be the kind of director of that song. So someone would come with a beat, someone would come with like some lyrics, someone would come with just a sort of concept and we'd just work together really collaboratively on this. And every single idea I brought to this band was all kind of all about mobile phones, um, kind of loneliness in the face of mobile phones, um, desire through the digital, all this sort of thing. There. And I wrote a series of songs with my band and I realised that actually those songs kind of needed to to be pop songs. So then I found people to work with me to kind of convert them into something that was a bit more like pop. And then I realised I needed someone to present that, you know, to like be the kind of pop star of those songs. And I decided to bring in Sagina, my drag queen character, <laughs> because she was already kind of a, you know, a kind of B-side celebrity, you know, people <laughs> thought herself she was. She was, she was available. She was up for the job. So it started off with, I think, Instantaneous Culture. I made a video in 2013 and shot it on my Nokia, partly, like literally a dumb phone camera and a really early iPhone with a couple of friends. And then I did a couple of videos but and then did some live performances and then realised something very interesting happened 
with that performance, but all of them revolve around the lyrics from these songs, which are about kind of, yeah, love, lust and loneliness really in the digital age. Yeah. So that's kind of how Sagina started. And then more recently, doing a PhD kind of <laughs> means you have to drag a topic right out and really far down and in a very weird way that feels often very opposite to what you want to do as an artist or how you work. So it is quite drag in a way to bring a PhD about drag. But one of my chapters is about the drag of templates. So I'm thinking about how we can resist some of these, you know, whether it is the the size of a screen, which is more difficult to resist because we all need those machines. But it is perhaps, you know, just to become aware of the how the templates that we're using, such as, you know, Instagram stories or, you know, the fonts that are available, yeah. how that kind of aesthetic uh, kind of all makes us all the say the same thing in a way and how long it lasts and how we think about stuff and how we think about time that, you know, you'll have a major performance and the stories will last for maybe like 30 hours because people will post sort of six hours later and then it's history already. So one of my lines from one of my songs is yesterday it was yesterday, today is now. That was, you know, a very early lyric from like 20, 2009 or something. But it really feels like that, that, you know, the... And at the same time, we're living in this really kind of crazy moment in history where we do not know what is going to happen tomorrow. And we kind of also maybe can't even remember what happened yesterday somehow. It's this very perpetual present and sort of precariousness. More blur. Less border, more collaboration, less competition, more emotion, less emoji. Your vulnerability, not your ignorant vulgarity. And it's just really interesting thinking about performance and documentation and what it is and thinking about early feminist performance that absolutely did not want a camera there at all you know that 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 would take away from the from the effect of a live performance that the live performance was there you saw it with your own eyeballs you felt it with your own body with your own senses and it carried off in the bodies of those who'd seen it and that's how it remained that was the all that needed now you know we're so documentation obsessed that things will be live streamed at the same time and what is that you know I mean, and that's what I've been doing since like 2015, you know, mm -hmm. sort of talk about that sort of thing and what happens to the performance or how does the presence of a live stream affect the the feel of that performance to the people who are physically in the space? What can you see online? So sort of play with that by, you know, sort of um, did an early simultaneous performance that happened in five different places at once in 2015 in five different cities, three different time zones. And, you know, the live stream feed looked like something from the 90s because it was via Google Hangout and it went through YouTube and it was terrible buffering and stuff. So this idea that you kind of see everything but also nothing online. Mm -hmm. But then it's also the kind of, you know, that in the actual space, the computer, it was done on a computer at that time, you know, people had to be moved out of the way of the computer. The computer also has a presence in that space and has to be kind of respected. You know, so often you'll have... When you have a computer or if you're trying to do a meeting, you've got one person on Zoom and everybody puts their attention onto the person in Zoom. So it's just the sort of presence of these of these machines and how it affects our kind of the gaze and the tension and things. I think one of the reasons why things are captured and fixed and recorded is also because of the kind of obsession with authorship. And we can only really do that, like especially we talk about copyright of lyrics, let's say. 
can only do that when you have a record. Who is the author? I'm, and yeah, I'm curious what, like, what you think about that, especially in the art world around who owns their work and how what we ought to be doing in terms of that. I mean, I really rarely sell anything actually. So in some ways, I think it's very much tied in ownership that's then tied in with kind of the ability of you to be able to make money from it. And I never really sell. So then it becomes the kind of cachet becomes about, you know, just, I suppose, credits and just making sure that people are paid to do the work that you do. You know, when you're, I'll never like calibrate with someone without giving some, you know, if they're working with me on a performance, for instance, to pay them. But I mean, you know, you've got the whole creative commons thing, which I think is a really good thing. But then it's also that the problem is we are in such a capitalist society that you can't have people ripping people's ideas off. And because this happens a lot, you know, there'll be some advertising, massive advertising thing that someone's artistic idea will be taken. So it's, it is really difficult because it should be there. Artists need to be protected and their ideas need to be protected. But it's but then it becomes exactly as you say, this kind of idea of this was mine. And this is why I love collaboration as well, because it just blurs. You know, you don't know. And when you work with someone, like a good collaboration was where you literally you know, just ideas sort of cook themselves in a pot between you and their ideas that wouldn't have come from either one of you or, or any three or four or how many you are. So, yeah, Sajina so kind of went from sort of just performing these songs, really, to performing the songs simultaneously with other people. So I'm interested in the idea that this identity, you know, kind of emerged from me and with me. I was talking about kind of in collaboration with Sajina but then I invited other people to do it. So yeah, I've got a long-term collaborator, Vladimir Bejelik, who's based in um, in Belgrade. I worked with yeah, sort of probably about ten different people have played Sajina to date. And this idea that it's a transferable, wearable kind of open source identity, and you kind of learn the code, you learn the gestures, which is actually not that different from kind of any any job in a way. Although the drag performance thing is is obviously quite specific and. Um, and it's been interesting because I did work with, I worked with one straight cis woman um, as Sajina and it just didn't work. It was really interesting. I was really like, shouldn't, maybe it doesn't matter, but it did. And that was also super interesting in terms of like embodied knowledge, embodied kind of experience that in order to play that, she, she just, it just wasn't a convincing drag somehow, Wow. which I thought was really interesting. She was a dancer as well, a, a performer, but it just didn't, there was something that... That it may, I mean, maybe it was just that one experience, but it just, it made me really, because Sajida is not, it's not being an actor to be Sajida. You have to kind of embody it in a certain way. You know, I think that's what drag is. It's not, a, it's, it's a performance, but it's not like acting. It's a different thing. It's a kind of finding of a certain, I think, yeah, I don't know, I haven't quite sort of tried, I managed to articulate it. But for me, Sajida is like, obviously an alter ego, but what is really interesting and the reason that I started inviting other people was when I was actually in Banff and I was making a music video. And for that video, which was called I Want to See You from a Different Perspective, three different play people played Sajina. And we had, I came with a bunch of like weird clothes in my suitcase and the clothes stayed in the same place and the people inside them changed, including Sajina. And then at the end of that, it's on the last night. And then one by one, people were like, oh, I'd be Sajina now. So we'd like go into the toilets and like swap clothes, come out. And what was really interesting was the way, as soon as they were in that dress, it was a pretty awful dress. As soon as they were in that dress, whoever it was, 
They walked like Sagina. They held their hand like Sagina. And that was just fascinating because I'd only been there for like a couple of weeks and I'd done a bit of, and it was the first time I'd done live performance. So I was like, there is something in this that people very, some something happens where this identity is transferable, whether it's through the clothes or the wig or the whatever it is. But there was something that started coming through of this character on different bodies. Mm. And I've seen that, but where it didn't work was was interestingly... Yeah, with this one person I worked with. And, and and so it just made me realize it's something about, it's definitely, Sajina's definitely like a queer identity that kind of in order to be legible and to be kind of authentic, there needs to be some kind of queer experience, I think, in the body that is playing it. Mm, that's fascinating. But in, in, the, in the bands, did everyone who was wearing that, were they queer or did you read them as queer? Uh, they were. It was a really, really queer residency, actually. It was pretty fun, yeah. They're, they're very, very interesting. I'm not, I'm not surprised that the that the identity and the movements somehow travel with the clothes. It somehow seems to relate to that, like, maybe like, in a sense, like hypnosis, the way that how a whole, a whole lot of, like, information about identity and embodiment and experience of reality can be transferred very... By, by like by a gesture and and, and a ritual and a ritual a ritualistic yeah. uh, performance and so I can really imagine that in that sense the dress was a form of it was almost like a hypnosis kind of like, and taking on the dress was and I think it's really interesting as well because we're in such an individualistic culture and obviously drag as well like normally like also with Sajina I I've worn the same outfits <laughs> time and time again over like ten years or something mm. and. Um, and obviously, normally a drag, you know, nobody else's, no drag queen normally is going to let someone else play that drag queen. Like that's right. very obsessively belongs to this particular individual. You know, this this drag character is this. So it's really interesting to to see what happens when other people embody this character that's kind of has a template, has a sort of history already. But they have the freedom to add to that and, and, and how Sajina as a character has grown as a result of that. Turn it off and turn me on. Turn it off and turn me on. Turn it off. Since turn 2019, I've on. been. There's been a performance called How Are You? Sajina's participatory soap opera mm. about wrestling with well being in the digital age. And that was based on a series of questions about well being um, and did it as a. performed it as a four hour durational performance in Brighton. And that was June 2019. And people kind of came in. There was a, we split the gallery into two halves, and at the front was introductory videos and things like that. And there were some gallery girls who would tell people sort of what the situation was. And in the back, there were these two people, wigless drag drag queens, of sort of uncertain genders um, and ad- agendas, <laughs> um, you know, typing in information from these forms that people were filling in, and also barking, kind of, you know, asking people. In quite a stern way, like how are you feeling? What are you feeling right now? Mm. On a scale of iPad to bed, how much influence can you have with iPad being one and bed being five, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing? So <laughs> people would have to kind of go, oh, I don't know, three, <laughs> three, and then write it in. So all this data, so it was quite a long questionnaire, and I was really interested in just kind of using the, the whole questionnaire as as this template and and enabling people to kind of have to take pleasure in it but also to kind of get really pissed off with it and bored because that's part of it so it's sort of pushing people slightly is it your intention to denaturalize these things which are becoming commonplace yeah. the way these questionnaires are structured and all these things like all these 
so strange strange rituals we perform and, and but they're becoming normalized is it your intention to denaturalize them and yeah, it is but the thing is i think often it's a bit people have said before it's almost a bit invisible as art because it's it's very you know i use the google forms i use the templates that you know i think of these templates as and these platforms as ready-mades upon which i perform these these kind of different interactions and and but you know and the google forms particularly they're just so in, they're so fascinating and the fact that you can do the analysis so in this performance that then went online over covid we then introduced the, the data analysis and then got people to actually read back and interpret these pie charts and things like that. So, so for instance, can we be good to one another? And then the, the answers are things like get it when you want it, uh, waiting for ice cream, more blur, less border, more emotion, less emoji or other. And then the, sort of someone will say, well, it seems like, you know, 52% is more blur, less border. And then we've got and then to see. And so this seems to mean, and so people would kind of feed the, the data back, but just the aesthetics, again, of the Google form that is so kind of ubiquitous. Sometimes it's almost invisible as art. And as, as we were saying earlier, at the beginning, it was very much, it was kind of, it was ironic, you know, this asking questions, scan this QR code, please take photos, you know, uh, we're going to record your your identity recorded, your or your data will be recorded, your identity will not, all this sort of thing. And then COVID happened, and it literally felt like being in the middle of a Sagina performance, mm. where everywhere you went, you had to fill in your data. Everywhere you went, you were being asked how you were, but with no feeling, mm. you know. So this sort of gathering about the sort of the nuts and bolts, the zeros and ones, the extremely binary kind of uh, responses or or, or or questions about how you're feeling and the impossibility of answering it, the impossibility of communicating it because of the platforms that we're in and because of being confined in our own homes and things like that. Obviously, this performance about well-being in the digital age and wrestling with well-being in the digital age, which I was already feeling very much, have been for a very long time. But then when COVID kicked in, that was massive and it really was about well-being. It was about bodies infecting each other. It was about physical presence being dangerous and it was about well if you stay at home you know the only way every single interaction you have with other people is going to be recorded and there's going to be a trace of it and so it, it really at the beginning like the first few performances I did online it felt like what was very interesting was compared to the offline performance the four-hour durational where people felt quite scared to come behind the division because we were in the back room as I said People were quite nervous because it was quite confrontational. These kind of drag queens sitting at the drag characters sitting at the computers and asking people very direct questions with eye contact. You know, this 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 option, this option, this option, and people kind of put on the spot. Whereas what was interesting online was people started chatting to each other, the audience, and then the main feedback I got, I think, after one of the first ones I did was how nice everybody was in the in the Zoom like the other audience members, which no one would ever write and go, well, the other gallery visitors were lovely, you know. Because <laughs> <laughs> gallery, gallery art galleries have been socially distanced, really rude spaces forever, you know, mostly. You know, you don't make friends in a gallery when you're watching a performance, yeah. generally. Well, not if it's, it depends, but, you know, a lot, a lot of the time in general. Yeah. Whereas, you know, in the early days of the pandemic, when people stuck at home, Somehow that performance provided a space for people to come together that was really, really nice and a kind of unexpected side effect in a way of the performance. But then, of course, Zoom Forward 
January 2022, it just felt, it felt inappropriate, unethical, and I just didn't want to have any part of it. Yeah. yeah. And so it was this sort of, you know, gut feeling, and I felt really upset and really, um, like I'd, I mean, it was funny because the people who had commissioned it, actually, they said, oh, everyone loved it and it was great. But I just really was like, I can't make this work. I don't want to make this work anymore. I don't want to contribute. We need all our wits about us. And it's literally our senses that get taken away from us when we're kind of lost in this world of the phone. I just, and it really was about attention. I, the amount of time, because I've been logging my time that I've been spent on the phone, I've put that, I've, I've been writing that partly into my, the PhD. So one of my chapters is the drag of physicality. That's like the key one. And I've been sort of logging my data and the amount of time spent and, you know, averaging it out per day. And you just look at it and you're like, God, you know, that's so much time. And what am I doing with that time? I feel like the only way we get through this, as we sort of had to do in COVID, it's really about local. It's about acting where you are. It's doing what you can, helping the people within literal arm's reach. And then of those sort of networks, of those hubs, and this is sort of how I see things happening and how I guess I would want a social media network also to be that's much more kind of location specific but this sort of can work across interest groups because it is really good for that. You at certain point decide that this performance wasn't was wrong but prior to that an ongoing like how do you read your audiences and to, to determine whether something feels bad or I, I can't even find the right words because I mean Maybe, in a sense, certain points you do want your audiences to feel bad because the topic is so, like you're trying to red pill people or whatever, like, say, so, like they, they need to be challenged and uh, whatnot. But how do you check in with your audiences so that you're not, say, doing some kind of harm? Or do you? And I don't, I don't inflict that you do, and we, we don't necessarily do it either. Like, we're just curious if you, if, if, if you do and, um, and if you have any good way. The way I do it with those performances, we have a very long list of rules and saying if you don't agree to these rules, then leave. So it's done in quite a strict way, like this is being recorded, ask, answer the agent when you're spoken to, participate in this, blah, 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 blah. If you don't want to do this, then please leave and make room for someone else. So I do. So it becomes part of the performance. That, so that's kind of, I suppose, the way we do it. Also, never collect any actual identifying data through these questionnaires. So it's not, there's no way that you, yeah, we don't collect email addresses or any of that stuff. People can leave them if they want. And then checking in, I think you can sort of see how readily people, you know, answer questions and you can see how keen people are, you know, from how they're sitting. And, you know, so, the, I mean, although, you you know, it's harder, it's a different way of reading, let's say, the room online versus versus offline. I mean, I do find it, you know, you never know, you know, so, I mean, every performance, especially when I'm sort of asking things of people, it's, it's, it's such a learning, learning experience for me every time because I never know and it's, and you never know how people are going to respond, but they were really excited to fill in the questionnaire then maybe in six months time, they'll be like, actually, no, why am I going to do this? I want to watch you on stage instead. So that's, that's what I find interesting about doing these kind of repetitive gestures, I suppose as things really do change, you know, and yeah. Yeah, and they're changing so quickly. So quickly. It's so, so it's just wild. This gap between, as you we were saying, that really reality and perf maybe performance or imagined reality is really narrowing and what kind of also what we accept. Totally. 
I wanted to ask you kind of theoretical question that maybe can lead into this idea around collaboration, which is, um, does does Sergina feel exploited by you, and how do you get her consent to to work together? Well, I think she doesn't really. I think she doesn't care about me at all. So she's sort of her own. So I probably draw on her more. Like when I had my interview PhD, I wore her heels under under the chair. Like that was on Zoom actually, on because I was in Berlin, couldn't get over there. But I think the yeah, I think she doesn't really care. She she I feel like she has her own her own thing that she's trying to build this business. She wants to make money now, and she's unabashedly kind of you know after that in a way that I find very difficult. But it's this ironic kind of she's able to sort of be this you know hey it's a good investment to buy this data and things, which is sort of funny because it is that sort of speculative thing with buying art right that that part of why people buy art is that maybe it will go up in value at some point you know so it's kind of funny to be able to joke about it and go well from you know for 13 quid you can have an original piece of artwork on your wall I, I mean I think that is my answer that she she doesn't really she feels like an independent entity she thinks she's an independent entity and uh, I suppose I'm wondering if she's helping me much at the moment and I have actually thought about archiving her completely for my PhD because it's also how long does all this stuff linger online? You know, mm-hmm. how how unless you li- literally take stuff off, it just stays there forever. Which I sort of find interesting in some ways, but again, it's about the clutter that's there. And do you know? Is it? Does it? What? What? And, it, and also, it has an environmental impact mm-hmm. because all of that stuff takes up space, well, energy. The forever does it because I mean the flicker. Flickr doesn't, although they will still be there if I then start paying. Those those will be, they say, deleted, but I mean, I'm sure they've still got them stored somewhere. On MySpace, when they accidentally deleted all the, all the early MySpace profiles, which were, our archive was lost, all these bands and, and people's social interactions from from the 20, 2008 or whatever, 2009, all that information was gone yeah. and, and is not retrievable. Yeah. And also Hotmail actually did the same thing with really although the early emails that I had, you know, with my parents in the 90s. It's just not that. I think if you put them onto a folder, they were, but I never remember receiving any notification about that. So we kind of think these things are around forever. And you're right, they're not necessarily. But then they are also, so one of the things I'm really looking at is like whose data could be used against them more. So like, you know, gender non-conforming bodies, brown bodies, black bodies are... People who have periods. Exactly. All of that stuff, it's where the data tells on you. And I think that in this really, that's also, I think, why I'm suddenly feeling like, ugh, about sharing so much information about my personal life online, even if it's a performance of of a life that I'm not really feeling I'm particularly living. But just because we do not know, and like, you know, Instagay is a hashtag, things change, suddenly it's no longer okay to be gay anymore legally or you don't have the rights to it you know it is i mean it's they you just know exactly who to who to target which is again another black mirror episode you know and um and 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 just this kind of we're so this conceitedness of we're living in a culture that's open and all the rest of it and of course there's still still so many fights you know trans rights all the rest of it still we're not there at all but at the moment you are legally allowed to pink you're legal but you know look at exactly look at what's happening in the states with abortion you know it's going to be gay anti you know the gay marriage thing's going to be turned around next or whatever we just don't know we cannot be conceited in that and we have to and it's not that we want people to be in any kind of closet or anything but it's just about an attention and and also campaign you know like the 
you know, police will will police in the States again. I'm sure it's elsewhere. You know, they actually they police black neighborhoods through through Facebook and things mm-hmm. like that. And you're much more. And that's when you're and the moment that you're accused of anything, then your data that supposedly was your private data is just open to be looked at. And even like some the border in the States at one point was like checking people's social media things. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Some people they comment, use whatever yeah. they can. Yeah. And if yeah. you don't, if, if you don't have sometimes a social media account, it's also grounds for suspicion. Because like, why don't you have a social media? Account? Right. What are you hiding? Wendy Chun, who's this amazing theorist, I don't even know her work, but you know, wrote, writes a lot about kind of um, uh, privacy and and how machines affect the way that we see and think and all that. She just says, don't write anything online at all, even a pri- in a private message that you wouldn't. Stand on the steps of the town hall and scream at the top of your voice with everybody you know. Reminds me about um, in Australia hearing about the, the census data in the 90s, 80s and 90s. They had a real tr- problem getting middle-aged or elderly Jewish people to take part in the census because they had memory of the census data being used against Jews in, in Germany and elsewhere. And now that memory is gone. But, but it was the same with the vaccines and it's, you know, the Afro-Caribbean um, community like yeah. were much less likely to take up the vaccine because of just like medical testing and all sorts of stuff against their communities, you know, so it makes sense. And yeah. So I wanted to, maybe a last question I wanted to ask about how... I mean, you have a huge body of work. So, like, it seems like you have been just working your ass off, basically. <laughs> and that in maybe self-exploitation, I'm not sure. Um, how, do you, how do you combat these processes of... I mean, do you feel exploited by others in your work? How do you combat these forces? And how do you... I mean, on a really practical level, maybe data aside, how do you build relationships that don't feel exploitative or how do you um, fight against that for yourself personally? I mean, I have a lot of really good friends always have in my life and that's been really, you know, I feel really blessed for that and that's, um, I can't survive without friends. That's like my, you know, and really long-term friends. I'm even friends with some people that I've known since I was like 10, you know, so, so, and it's not necessarily regular contact either. Some of my best friends live one of them lives in Australia and I see her every like maybe eight even longer years and you just pick up. So I think there's this weird obsession. I remember the early stages of mobile because I've been thinking about mobile phones forever. It was like year 2002 when they, the um, networks were trying to persuade people that they needed phones. And one of the adverts was a guy sitting around a party and nobody else there and saying, don't lose your friends. So like, you know, if you don't have a mobile phone, you're going to lose your friends. You know, and friendship is not, doesn't, Really good friendship does not need constant re- relationships of any sort. They they shouldn't need kind of constant checking in. But I am exhausted and I think I'm sort of on the brink of or have been experiencing a form of burnout. But I think it's the Protestant work ethic is awful and has a lot to answer for this idea of productivity all the time. And, you know, like that nap ministry is a brilliant thing, but, you know, she has the right to, to nap. And of course, that's particularly from a black experience is, you know, mm. Um, a massive thing, but I think it, we can all learn from that. And particularly when a lot of this busyness is perhaps not even necessarily helping us, you know, or helpful, like the sort of time it takes to do an Instagram post, that sort of thing. So, you know, you save so much time and energy by not doing that for a while. Yeah. And it is like we were talking about, the, you know, funding or how precarious it is. Like an artist might have funding for a period of time and then suddenly it goes and 
how precarious everything and is and, and teaching as well. So I've been really broke this summer because my last paycheck for my teaching at university was in June and I haven't even seen a contract for this year. I ha- I'm going to be teaching on the curating MFA course. I haven't seen a contract, don't know when I'm going to be paid next. In the meantime, what was, well, I was meant to be writing my PhD, but I have a grant of, you know, £700 a month. And that's whatever else. Yeah. So there's like a there's a a small bit of structure in place for the PhD work, but there's a small bit of structure. Yeah. But it's just, yeah. So then I'm teaching alongside it. But um, but this is the reality of so many lecturers who are kept on that for sort of 10 years. So I'm like, I actually don't have the strength to keep doing this. But I love teaching. But it's incredibly stressful to have no money and to not know when it's coming next and you know and to have so little security when everything else is also so incredibly precarious so when the person above above you in the university approaches you with a contract do you feel what do you feel towards that and they're like like and they have or they're not and then they're part of a structure which is not taking care of you over the summer as you, as you pointed mm-hmm. out how do you feel towards that person well, it's not the individual, it's always the system. That's the thing. Right. I mean, the person themselves are probably exploited, you know, that one. And, you know, and their hands are tied. And I mean, I'm also doing, I'm running a PhD workshop for another university, not until December. But the amount of admin and paperwork I've had to do for that, just to make sure I will be paid in December. Yeah. And the amount of work that that person who's trying to do that for me is doing in order that I might be paid within three months of yeah. so the fact of doing that at being paid not a very big rate. You know? Right. Yeah, yeah, and the performance I did in in um, July was a huge, huge, quite a huge performance to work and everything, and the fee was three hundred pounds, which is of which a hundred pounds at least was you know on like buying t shirts and stuff, yeah. and you know that math I needed to have a tw- you now that's twenty years of experience to that got me that that you know hour and a half long gig. And I just am something that I just can't do anymore. Right. I don't have, I don't, and I don't want to at this rate anymore. And I, I haven't got the strength to kind of, I don't even know what, how to fight fight for it. Or I don't want to fight. I'm not a fighter. I'm a collaborator and a negotiator and a kind of friend kind of person. That's the way I want to live my life. So, but the structures are just becoming more and more hostile, particularly in the UK. Of that, yeah, and I really think collaboration in all its form, conversation, collaboration, conversation, un- unoverheard conversations, right. also, you know, and um, reclaiming as unoverheard conversations. So, you know, reclaiming a space of intimacy to really explore kind of difficult things. I think we need to be unafraid of conflict within friendships and within. Ooh, that's tough. Yeah, yeah, really tough. I know, really tough. For Sojourner, I did a lot of like participatory and oral history projects and one was actually about going to very very I mean I was raised I sort of sometimes refer to myself as mixed class because although I like went to state school and everything my parents didn't have a hell of a lot of money on my mum's side of the family they were at one point a very kind of aristocratic family with a family tree going back to 1050 or whatever but I come down the female line so there hasn't been money on my branch of the family for years and years but there's the odd like silver spoon in the in the cutlery drawer and stuff that's like these sort of clues. But on the other on the other side of my family, my dad's side, there was an artist called George Richmond who was the most prolific portrait artist of the Victorian era, and he actually his parents were like public you know ran a pub and stuff like that. But he did really really well, and I used like the accidental privilege of my ancestry to gain access to all these very very posh houses who still own 
family portraits by my great-great-great-grandfather. So I did these oral history projects of asking them about their portraits, whether it's always hung in the same place in their house, how long they've been in the house and things like that. And they would talk about identity. There's one person who's a lord, the seventh lord of whatever, wow. said, we've, we've been here for 600 years. And every night we draw up the drawbridge. And this idea of an identity spanning right back and right forwards, you know, that this sort of projection, this blood, this identity through blood is just so kind of interesting. So, you know, I would have to also be in marginal stealth mode with that because, I mean, my excuse was going in to look at the portraits and people read me as a kind of nice girl who studied art history going in to look at her great-great-great-grandfather's portraits. Wow. What kind of drag did you wear? <laughs> yeah. I did wear the same kind of... I mean, I was living in Berlin, actually, at the time, so I had a super, like, queer haircut and stuff. And at one point, one woman said to her husband, she's awfully Bahamian, darling, isn't she? Oh, wow. In front of me. <laughs> Love it. That's amazing. But, yeah, so, but, but at the same time, like, they would... But they, you know, some of the stuff that was said at that point was really, really, really difficult to hear because it would be really, really unupdated views about the yeah. colonial period and everything. But And I had people, when I presented the work, someone was saying, why didn't you say anything? I'm like, I'm in their home. I'm not there to correct them. I'm there to kind of show that these views still exist in order to, you know, that the, the, they are here like this. So they're, the, yeah, so it's kind of... Listen. And to listen, exactly. And to, and, yeah. To document. Yeah. yeah. Um, if we want tolerance, we have to practice tolerance. It can't be one way. Yeah. yeah. So we have to, if people find... You know, if, if if I'm asking you to accept me, then I also have to accept you on some level. It yeah. has to happen both ways. And otherwise it is kind of, it's a demand and then it doesn't ever. And the, and that's why I'm really interested in the process, in the dragging and the blur and the kind of in between the binaries, which of course also in an increasingly digitized existence, it literally is zeros and ones, you know. Yeah. So no wonder it's hard to be gender non-conforming yeah. or, you know, however you fit on the sort of, any kind of in-between spectrum, which actually pretty much every every single person does. Yeah. You know, even yeah. the people that pretend they don't, they will, they're going to have the blurs somewhere, they're going to have the drag, yeah. will be in there somewhere. There's a sliding scale, you know, that's what it is. And so that's what I'm trying to suppose make space for, a space of also, um, a space of illegibility as a legitimate space to be. And also of not always knowing what you feel about things. We don't always know. Sometimes it takes a while. Like, you know, I hear your point. Okay, let me think about it. Or I really disagree with you, but, mm. but you know, we're still friends and that's fine, you know. And that's where things like neighbours, you know, maybe our neighbours, vote. some of them voted for Brexit. I don't know, but I'm not going to not look after them if they're ill because of that, you know, or not accept help from that. You know, it's not going to be a deal break. It's like at some point, they can, those sorts of things, we can't let all those things divide us completely because we need to stick together and find ways and... Yeah. There are certain things, obviously, that are very, very difficult to yeah to deal with. But yeah, the, the the contention that like by excluding somebody, they're gonna feel so excluded that eventually they're gonna realize they were wrong all along and change whatever. No, it doesn't happen. It just makes rejected them more, yeah. and then come back no. to us. But it's pre-raised. <laughs> no, exactly. But it's proven that the more people are questioned about it, the more rigorously they hold on to their beliefs. 
Yeah. So better is if there's a space for conversation. And there are some really good initiatives, like how to have conversations with people with different viewpoints. Right. And there's a really nice program, actually, Radio 4, that's about people who have completely opposing views on something oh, like oh, public great. school, like public school, um, you know, private schools should be abolished. Mm. Uh, or someone is from a private, you know, and they have this conversation. So these sorts of things, I think, are, um, yeah. And there's an artist whose name I forget who gets people who disagree to actually interact, like, with a piece of paper holding it and pulling it and things like that. So there are different sort of methods. And I really think, especially if we're going to act more locally, you're going to find people very close to you in your neighbourhoods and things like that who have different view, you know, who have different views on some things, but yeah. there will be things that you will do also agree on. And, yeah, so I suppose that's 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 what I'm trying to do is this sort of... More, more blur, less border. So that's what I think we all need. And then hopefully we can live better alongside each other and have more fun as well. You just heard from artist and researcher Ellie Clark. The focus of her multimedia-based artistic work lies on the transformation of the physical body in an increasingly digitally mediated and experienced world, which she explores through performance, video, photography, music, curated and community-based projects. You can read more about her and her character Sergina in the show notes. I'm Mad Kate, and you've been listening to Sweat, a series of conversations about performance and performativity of the sexual and sexualized body in work. The theme music was composed by me and features the voice of performer and actress Lori Baldwin. Sweat airs every second Tuesday of the month at 13 hours Central European time on Collaboradio, Free Radio's Berlin Brandenburg. Broadcasting on 88.4 FM in Berlin, 90.7 FM in Potsdam, and streaming online at fr-bb.org. Thanks so much. Until next time. Share it all with me. Give it. Give it all to me. I want to know your history. I want to know your story. I want to know your mystery. Share it all with me. Share it. Share it all. I want to know what you did last year. I want to know how you wore your hair. I want to know what you feel about current affairs. Open. Open up to me. I want your data. I want your facts. I want to know the context, darling, of your acts. Open. Open up to me. Share it. Share it all with me. Give it. Give it all to me. I want your code. I want your pose. I want to know the secrets of your woes. Share it. Share it all with me. Give it, give it all to me. Open, open up to me. I want to see your mystery. I want to know your history. I want to know your story. Open up to me.